And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. breakfast our twice weekly red rings podcast here on the athletic i'm max boltman with me as always is prashant Iyer. and technically there was a red rings game last night it was on the schedule there was a final score i was even there but i can't tell you anything that happened because i'm not sure anything did yeah i mean did you at least see the team in, in red and white were they there because i was having a little bit of difficulty actually spotting you know, anything of semblance in the offensive zone for them. Yeah. I think they actually, they, they were there, but they just mostly were on the right side of the ice for most of the game. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's fair enough because I, I honestly, it was almost like there was this uh, maybe like blurred pane of glass that as soon as you got to the left side of the TV screen, you didn't see anything, but then very soon after you saw the puck going back in the other direction uh, back towards Red Wings net. And I felt like that was basically the gist of the hockey game. I think that's a fair summation. I mean, this was uh, through two periods, truly the only thing I could, there are two things I could tell you that I remember. One was Philip Zadina seeming to get hurt in the corner on a reverse hit that he then came back out for a few minutes later. And so it amounted to nothing of consequence and a disallowed Philip Forsberg goal on a challenge that I thought had no chance of winning that won. And those were the only two things that I could tell you confidently happened in that game. Uh, in the third period, more happened, but it was all by the National Predators. And uh, I, I, you know, this is not like one of the Red Wings' worst games of the year in terms of margin or in terms of, you know, even I thought their defensive play was relatively okay. But this was one of the worst ones to watch. And it, it was, you know, it might have been one of their worst. Uh, Certainly, offensive performances. I mean, it, that's kind of captain obvious with with no goals, but very, very few chances. Even the whole game. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, it's funny that you say that it didn't seem like their worst game of the season. I mean, statistically, it was their worst game of the season. Uh, if you go by kind of five on five expected goals for percentage, they they clocked in at a at a really, really strong twenty six point seven percent. For the game, which actually is their worst game of the season, worse than any of the Carolina by games. Yeah, yeah, but just by percentage. So, yeah. um, and, and a large part of that, again, has to do with the fact that they recorded less than one expected goals at five on five. I mean, you're just, you're not going to win hockey games doing that. That's the fourth time this season they've had a game where they've had less than one expected goal at five on five. Um and their five on five defense wasn't as sharp as it usually was given north, given up north of two and a half. Uh, expected goals at five on five where they usually are 
or kind of closer to about 1.7, 1.8 for a 45 minute, you know, kind of time frame uh, in a game. So, I mean, you put the two together and statistically from a percentage standpoint, that is the worst game of the season. And it certainly felt like it. I mean, at, at times, I think I, I tweeted out that it felt like a game of Red Rover where, you know, Detroit would throw the puck into Nashville's end and then Nashville would just throw it right back into Detroit's end and literally nothing happened. It was probably one of the worst hockey games I think I've ever watched. Well, the reason that I keep it out of that bottom tier is because I three days ago watched them get smacked 7-2 to two by Panthers, and that's a game in which they did just about nothing offensively. Uh, but also were, you know, just atrocious all over the ice at every, you know, at least I thought they were competent defensively in this game. Even if I, I agree with you, it was, uh, you know, one of their, it was still a down game defensively in terms of what they gave up. But, you know, it, I, I still think it's a cut above like that last Florida game. There was that Chicago game, uh, the first time they played Chicago this season. Uh, and then I think you can argue that the Tampa game, even though that was really a, a story of five minutes early in the game, uh, I thought that game was equally boring, but uh, offensively, I think this was might've been their worst offensive performance. I'll definitely give you that. Yeah. I mean, you know, regardless, I think we can, we can get into the semantics of how, just how bad this one yeah, was. Right. Uh, but at the end of the day, this had to be one of the uh, the five worst games the wings yes, have played this season. I and, agree. and I think, you know, you have to, if you're, if you're taking a 10,000 foot view here, um, you have to get a little nervous because I think, if you looked at this team two weeks ago, they had strung together a lot of good games. They were looking good at five on five. They just weren't necessarily getting the the wins that they uh, were kind of deserving almost. Now you kind of are looking at the last handful of performances. I mean, you have the, the game where they get spanked by Florida. You have this game here against Nashville. Um, and you're starting to build up a series of bad performances and so I think if you're the Red Wings, you very quickly need to slam the brakes on this because you're now going from losing close games that you probably should have won to losing close games that you have no business being in. And I think that's the that's the dangerous part uh, for the Wings, especially as they're looking forward to the rest of the season where they've still got 18 games against Tampa, Carolina, and Dallas. So they, they have to figure this out really, really quickly. You're dead on. I mean, between their struggles so far against Chicago um, and now, you know, th- this last game against Nashville, Nashville is a team that I thought they outplayed thoroughly through their first meeting this season, both games. They ended up splitting the series. Uh, last night, Nashville completely took them out of the game. Like they had no shot, uh, even though they only lose by two goals. I mean, as soon as Nashville scored, we, you were on dagger watch. Like the next Nashville goal was going to end the game. That was how little of a chance the Red Wings had of scoring, you know, really once, but but twice ultimately at that point. Like it was just uh, completely smothered by the Predators. And the Predators are one of the six or seven worst teams in the NHL this year. Uh, and so, you know, the Blackhawks were the team I thought was going to rival Detroit for the bottom of the central turns out nobody's going to, but, but now the predators are going to finish seventh. I, I have no doubt about that. And for the predators to be able to completely take the Red Wings out last night, uh, would, would give me, you know, uh, a scare if I'm the Red Wings knowing, as you alluded to how much tougher the schedule is going to get because Carolina can do the exact same thing Nashville just did. And they're going to score four times on you. Yeah. I mean, Carolina's arguably one of the most terrifying offensive teams in the league. I think they lead the league or they're second in the league in goals per game. They have the most uh, impressive power play in the league. I mean, this is a, a team where if you play like this 
against Carolina, Tampa, and uh, Dallas, you are going to continue to get blown out. Um, and, and, you know, I like to use penalties drawn as, as almost a proxy for kind of how much you were actually able to skate with the puck and maybe play that sense. You know, the Wings got one power play in that game, and you can't really argue that there were any missed calls that really warranted them getting any more opportunities. I mean, they were plain and simple, just completely taken out of the game, had no ability to, to skate with the puck. And it's not like Nashville, you know, like you said, Max, it's not like Nashville is a robust defensive team. I mean, this is a goalie, Pecorine, who when the Wings beat the Predators, you know, yes. a couple of weeks ago, it was all because Pecorine couldn't stop a beach ball. Like some of the goals that he was letting in were, were pretty soft goals. So you just had to put pucks on him and the Wings could not even do that. So I think it's not necessarily time to sound the alarm bell and that the wings are going backwards, backwards, backwards towards last season. But you have to be very, very concerned with their last string of five or six games uh, relative to where they were in kind of the 10 of games before, because uh, now you're starting to lose games that you have no business being in. Yeah, lose games that you have business being in, you mean? No, no, no. I mean, at the beginning, they, they were losing games that they should have won they should have been able to win those games they really controlled play but i think if you're looking at the last five or so they shouldn't have won those games they were not competitive in those games and they lost those games i'm saying you're regressing back to where they're not actually as competitive in these hockey games anymore oh i thought you were like i thought, I was, I thought you were referring to like you know they're 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 getting they're, they're losing the teams that they should be able to in theory compete with and they're not they're not at that level but i know i think that's fair too yeah, i mean you know yeah. nashville florida chicago these are all te- i mean those are your last seven games you should be able to 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 beat those teams i mean florida really you've played florida nashville chicago in your last nine games i think so, and, and you're coming away, you know, relatively empty-handed from that. Yeah, I mean, the, w- the way I saw this playing out for the Red Wings, just to give everybody kind of a picture of, of how I arrive at, like, you know, how I forecast the season, right? So you get eight teams against – eight games against seven different teams. And I pretty much was figuring, on the whole, you can go close to 500 against Florida, Chicago, Nashville, Columbus. You can probably go two or three wins against Dallas – uh, even though Dallas is a cup team, they're they're just not that good of a, a regular season team. Like they're really built for the, for the playoff style, and you you catch a team like that in the regular season, uh, and and sometimes you can pick up some wins. It's it's why Dallas was it kind of came out of nowhere a little bit last season, um, in their run to the cup, and then any win that you get against Carolina or Tampa, you just you know say your prayers you know, and, and appreciate it. Cause you, you're going to be overmatched every single time. I would not expect the Red Wings to win a single game against those teams. Um, obviously they did, they, they've already beaten Carolina once, but uh, so that's kind of how I approach this season. And you look at where it's fallen apart is they have yet to beat Chicago. I think they've held serve against Florida. They've only won two out of six against them, um, but they've been in every game except for one against them. And so that's a team that I think they've played better than any other team. Uh, and Nashville was trending that same way until last night's game, which I think is a big red flag. I mean, they'll play them again tomorrow. They've been better in the second games of, of every single series they've played this season, except for uh, the Florida second Florida series. They actually won the opener. But even beyond wins and losses, I think they've been better on the second game of every series. Uh, if they're not better against Nashville tomorrow, this thing, is, you're, I mean, they are. They just already are. They're in, in a you know, race to the bottom here with Ottawa. Yeah, I mean, I think about two weeks ago after Detroit beat Florida 4-1, it 
and played kind of one of their best games of the season. I tweeted out that I said Detroit had a shot at going six, three and two to finish out the month of February, because at that time they were playing well, they were being, they were very competitive in all their games for the most part. Uh, They really just weren't getting the bounces necessary. And then if you looked at their schedule, kind of the remainder of February, you had four games against Chicago, you had four games against Nashville and you had three games against Florida. Uh, and, and so you had a real opportunity if you're Detroit to come away with some points, but instead you lose to Florida, you lose to Nashville, you pick up one win, um, uh, you know, against Nashville on the second game there, you pick up one win second game of Florida, but now you've got three games left and you've only won two of these hockey games and you were only able to squeak a point out of one of the other ones, you know, instead of being able to go six, three and two, now you're just trying to avoid, uh, you know, going two, eight and one, uh, making sure that you at least are finding a way to get something out of these. So uh, it's really important that Detroit figures this out because if you look at their March schedule, it's Columbus, Carolina, Tampa, Tampa, Carolina, Carolina, Dallas, Dallas, Nashville, Nashville, Columbus, Columbus, Florida. Like there's a real chance. Like good luck. This was, I mean, and we talked about this last year. That was what Detroit's March looked like in the previous season. They actually got bailed out by the season getting stopped. This is the same murderer's row. I mean, you have maybe two winnable games that you should pick up against Nashville, but those are even in Nashville. You're not even playing those at home. Otherwise, I mean, it's, it's all playoff teams. So they, they really have to sort something out here. And I think the answer has got to come from their special teams. It does. I mean, the, the special teams, again, like, you know, as bad as I think they were offensively at five on five last night and, and your point about the overall percentage says that they, they weren't good in any phase of the game. And that includes five on five, but it, again, give up two power play goals, don't get any final scores 2-0, you know, at some point one plus one just equals two there. Yeah. And I mean, now the wings are what? Oh, for 37 uh, on the power play going back to Bertuzzi's goal in January against Dallas. Uh, this is the longest streak in franchise history as much as, as, as far back as I could find. And, you know, they're, they're only 22 away from the record here. So I mean, something's got to give because you're you can't be a team that can't score at five on five and have the 31st power play and the 29th penalty kill. You're just you're you're plain and simple going to start getting blown out of games. I want to know. And I, I know you can't speak for the fan base here, but I want to know if people actually want the streak to end or if there's like a secret part of them that wants it, wants this power playlist streak or this drought to uh to continue just because it it seems to have become emblematic of so much about the team and their inability to score. And you've got that that graph that you've been keeping track of now that uh, was making the rounds on Twitter today of their five-on-five uh, five goals per 60 versus five-on-five five, uh, goals per 60 on the power play. Or sorry, not five-on-five, five, goals per 60 on the power play. Uh, and I almost wonder, is there something cathartic about that streak and that that just like – it seems to be the thing that really is what gets through to other, whether it's other fans or whether it's national media members or whatever. Like I've seen a lot of them pick up on it and Red Wings fans are like, yes, do you see like, like this is what it is. Like, I almost wonder if people want it to continue just because it's the only way people seem to understand what they're going through. I mean, I'll speak for myself in that sense. That's how I process like how bad the Red Wings are. I literally have to be that person standing there going, look, look at how bad this is. Like this is as bad as it, it can be. And I'm going to shove this number in front of your face so you understand that, like, this is miserable. 
This is terrible. And I think, you know, because of that and because that's the way I've kind of interacted on social media for years, I think the the people that follow me and have followed me for years are going to tell you it's the same way uh, that they process it the same way. Like, you know, I tweeted out the graph a, a few days ago and then someone said, you know, this is this is like evil or this is something along those lines. And I said, no, what would really be sick would be if I included the league medians. And immediately I get five <laughs> tweets back saying, I bet you you won't. And so it's like, okay, people, I, I really think people want to see it. I mean, this is, this is emblematic. It's defining and in the sickest sense possible, you know, people want to see it so they can process and really understand uh, and, and maybe just help get through watching just another terrible season of hockey. Yeah. Especially, you know, when it comes to like, you know, like last year's draft lottery, I think when, uh, when the Red Wings fell to fourth, there was so much kind of sniping from whether it was, you know, media or other fans and uh, about, you know, Oh, well, that's what you get for, for tanking or whatever. And the, the, the roar of responses, at least I saw to whenever that take pop popped up was like, how is this tank? Like, did you watch this team play? This was not tanking. This was just, you know, a, an atrocity. Basically. Yeah. I mean, I remember them going after Wyshynski when he tweeted that this is what happens when you tank and literally the entire fan base piled on him because they're saying, did you, did you watch this team? There's no, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't intentionally trying to do that. Yeah. If you want to see tanking, give them a power play for 60 minutes and see how, how many goals they score. I mean, that's where we're at right now. We're at it. We're in a place where right now at five on five, the Red Wings goals four per 60 is higher than their five on four goals four per 60. I mean, this is mind blowing stuff. We are 21 games into the season and you are scoring more at five on five than you are when you have a man advantage. That, that is just completely blowing my mind uh, right now. I mean, I'm, I'll, I'll be curious. I can't imagine that the, the longest record in the NHL is, is much longer than this. So the wings have to be creeping up on it. I'm going to try and figure out if I can get the data to analyze it. But I, I suspect we're, we're approaching kind of NHL record-breaking territory with kind of how deep we are into the season and how bad this power play still looks. Unfortunately, uh, the next power play goal is going to undo that stat for you. Oh, it Unless totally it does will. really take like 30 more power plays. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, yeah. If we really do get to the record and the wings get to 0 for 60 on this streak, which would be the new NHL record. Uh, again, this has been tracked back to 1977, 1978. Actually, the 70 or the uh, 97-98 Toronto Maple Leafs have the record where, you know, funnily enough, uh, we think the Red Wings power play is bad. In the first three months of their season, they had an 0 for 43 streak and then an 0 for 59 streak after. So that that was a team that really couldn't score power play goals. What team is that? That's the 97-98 Toronto Maple Leafs. So oh, I thought you said it was Montreal. I was going to say Montreal's never had a good power play. No, so. no, no, no. And and and, and Claude <laughs> Julian will pay for that uh, as well. But oh, I was uh, making a joke about how good Montreal's power play <laughs> used to be, the one that they literally changed the rules for. You know, but uh, yeah, ninety-seven, ninety-eight Toronto Maple Leafs is is where we're going here. So if the Wings can get there, I mean, shoot, it might take some time for them to be able to climb back. Uh, above with their five on four scoring rate it's kind of how i how i uh, felt about last season it was almost like uh you know people they obviously they want they wanted something to be happy about but if if you can't actually be happy there's almost something to be said for being the most miserable 
I, I mean, that's least. what it is, is the competition yeah. of who can be the most miserable and how impressively bad can my hockey team be? Like, yeah. you know, I used to get in an argument with, it was a joke argument with uh, Kevin, who is a, a Sabres fan, and we would legitimately argue who was worse, the 1920 Red Wings or the 1415 Sabres, because it was a it was a competition and it was such a, a heated discussion that Micah McCurdy had to simulate a series, a seven-game series with his model to, to settle this. And yes, the 1920 Red Wings lost the series. So, you know, putting that all in, you know, bringing that all back, I mean, it really is somewhat of a way to process this is just seeing how bad they can really be. Absolutely. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Well, so that'll wrap uh, that kind of segment here. But I want to spend the bulk of today's episode on some individual player dives. I mean, we're not quite at midseason. It's not the neat and tidy time of the year to be doing this, but uh, it just felt like kind of a good check-in time for, for how different uh, players are doing, especially I think kind of one of the narratives right now has been about Dylan Larkin and, and how he's been, um, you know, certainly we've had a lot of conversations about Troy Stetcher, but I was going through Dom Lucision's uh, GSVA uh, update today, which, which is new. And I certainly uh, would encourage everybody to go check that out on the athletic um, I think Dom does great work. And I think on the value stats, I'm always really interested to see how his model um, rates different guys. And so I think uh, John Merrill was the one who came in up top among Red Wings defensemen. And in some ways that's not stunning. He's been very good. He's been, he's graded out very well uh, by goals above replacement too. Um, but what shocked me was kind of the company that he's keeping in, in Dom's model. I mean, the names that, that he is right above like the four names after John Merrill, who has a 0.96, uh, you know, game score value added so far this year are uh, Ivan Provorov, Rasmus Ristolainen, Colton Pareko, and Seth Jones. And if you want one more, it's Justin Hall. And if you want another one after that, it's Mackenzie Wegar. And those are guys who have all been getting a ton of hype this year. Even Ristolainen who normally uh, gets hammered by the analytic crowd uh, because he is having maybe his best season as a pro. Uh, what is behind that? I mean, for John Merrill to be up with some of those names who are getting all kinds of love, uh, you know, how's he doing this? I mean, uh, I think when you go and you're trying to tease out like what's really driving Merrill's response here, if you look across all the different models um, and analysis, the, the number one thing that jumps out to you is when John Merrill's on the ice, Shots are not going on the Red Wing net. 
and specifically quality shots are not going. And that's been a consistent feature uh, of Merrill for the duration, really the entirety of his career. If you go back, um, one of the nice uh, summary ways you can see this is if you go to Hockey Viz, which is Micah McCurdy's uh, website, and you pull up the isolated summaries of, of John Merrill and look at kind of how he's looked over the course of his career. He's consistently a guy that when he's on the ice, other teams generate you know, lower quality chances relative to the league average. I think that's a big thing here. I think the other key is remember that Merrill missed time when a lot of the other wings kind of key guys uh, or secondary scoring guys also missed time. My suspicion is when those guys were out, a lot of the guys who were left in the lineup, the Larkin, the Manthas, uh, and, and so on and so forth, they actually took a big hit with their numbers because the wings were just not playing as well. And so, you know, from a numbers perspective, they looked worse. But when Merrill comes back, he comes back at the same time as kind of everybody else on that list. Zadina, Fabry, uh, you know, Ernie, Gagne, they all come back right around the same time. And all of a sudden, the wings are able to be a little bit more competitive. So I think part of that is over a small sample size. Uh, I think missing those games is also a, a key kind of reason for why Merrill looks good because he's only been in the lineup really with a full roster. So he just turned 29. Uh, you know, obviously I don't expect him to be, you know, talked about in the tier of some of the names I just mentioned, your Provorov, your Pareko, your Seth Jones, whatnot. But he's 29 years old. He's a pending unrestricted free agent. Do you re-sign John Merrill? And what kind of term are you looking at here? I mean, he's not going to break the bank. This is a guy who's playing for, I think, less than a million dollars right now. If you can get him for two or three years at 2.5 million, I, you know, with, with I mean, it, for him really small sample. I think he's only played 12, 13 games. I don't want to get out of ahead of our skis here. Uh, but you know, is this a guy who's a legitimate kind of short midterm extension candidate? Yeah. I think he's a guy that makes a lot of sense, uh, especially when you look at the Red Wings, kind of the left side of their defense. We, we talk so much about how their, their right side is really solidified for the future. Uh, you know, with Philip Aronic, Moritz Sider, obviously coming over next, uh, next season, likely will be in the NHL lineup right from the get-go. Uh, the left side is less certain. You know, I think Danny DeKaiser was a guy who a couple years ago, a lot of people expected him to be there. Now, you know, he still hasn't been able to be healthy from his back injury. Uh, so I think that's a huge question mark. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to, to re-sign a guy like Merrill if he's willing to stick around for another two years. Uh, you, you sign him, you... Uh, you know, can keep it cheap. You can probably do a two-year, $2 million deal for a guy like him uh, being a $1 million average annual value. And I think he takes that deal um, and is able to stick around the area and he's able to be that good defensive defenseman that honestly, you know, is giving you what you kind of hoped Danny DeKaiser was going to give you uh, yeah. being that kind of good defensive defenseman support. And honestly, he would be a great launching partner for a guy like Moritz Sider to be able yep. to play on the right side for. I mean, uh, he's he's going to be that stability, that rock, the guy who's going to uh, make good outlet passes. And I think he would be a great partner for Sider. So I think he's a guy I'd certainly like to see back if he if you're able to do that. Yeah, a Merrill Sider pair would would accomplish two things. Number one, you know, in 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 a perfect situation, it is a excellent shutdown pair. If Sider trans if Sider's defensive game translates immediately, then you have already one of your best chance suppressors and a guy who you expect to someday be one of your best chance suppressors out there at the same time. But number two, and I would argue more importantly for a guy who's going to be coming over at 20 years old, 
it's going to allow more insider to keep pushing the bounds of what he can do in his offensive game. He's a guy that likes to join the rush. He's a guy that, you know, at the time of his draft, maybe we didn't realize could be as good as he was um, offensively and jumping into the play largely because he hadn't been asked or, or necessarily allowed to do it playing as such a young guy in a pro league. Well, if I'm the Red Wings, I want more insider embracing those instincts a little bit early in his career. Um, now that would run a little bit counter to what they've, how they've handled young defensemen in the last three, four years. We got to be honest about that. Um, but in a best case scenario, you, you pair him with John Merrill and it at least gives him the chance to, to push the bounds a little bit and try and um, just see what, what else can come. He's already raised my opinion of his offensive game significantly since he was drafted. This is the kind of defense partner, I believe, who would allow him to just see just how high can I take this? Yeah. And I mean, when we're talking about more insider, I think we're legitimately talking about the Red Wings best defensive prospect that they've had since arguably Yuri Fisher back in 2002. I mean, you know, Nick Cronwall, yes, he was a great defenseman, outstanding, but as a prospect, wasn't necessarily viewed in the same kind of frame as, as more insider is right now. Whereas Yuri Fisher, I think, kind of coming up was a, a really good guy, was able to crack the Wings lineup at 19 and, again, doing it on a very good Red Wings team. But uh, I, I think if you're looking for the parallel, I mean, you got to throw it all the way back to Nick Lidstrom. And when Lidstrom broke into the league uh, with the Red Wings in his rookie season, they paired him with Brad McCrimmon. And Brad McCrimmon was the, was the beast. He was the steady shutdown defenseman. He allowed Lidstrom to be able to jump up uh, on the rush, play to his instincts because he knew he always had support from McCrimmon behind him. And I think you're you're looking for a similar concept with Sider. Now, Sider certainly doesn't have the offensive end strengths of a Nick Glitchstrom. He certainly doesn't have that kind of game, flash, flare, offensive drive. But you want him to be able to play instinctively and with those instincts as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to pare it down and play a safe hockey game and maybe lose some of what makes him special because he is worried about chasing, uh, you know, the puck or making sure he's defensively responsible. I think Merrill is going to be a great guy, similar to what McCrimmon was for, uh, for Lidstrom. And even when Fisher came up and started to stick around a little bit more, the Wings paired him with Chris Chelios. Heck of a veteran guy, and Chelios by that point's in his 40s, uh, doesn't necessarily have the same jump to his game. And so, you know, Chelios was able to be that defensive safeguard for Yuri Fisher. So I think you can do a similar thing with Sider here in Merrill. You went through and checked uh, and, and counted these up. And so by GSVA, Merrill right now, uh, 63rd and based on uh, standings points above replacement per 60, which is the kind of the evolving hockey version of, of this kind of warlike stat, uh, 65th in the league. That puts him as a top end second pair defenseman or a fringe bottom uh, first pair defenseman. We attribute quite a bit of that, I imagine, to the sample, but no matter what, like if, if he's even if he takes a little bit of a step back there, you're looking at what what appears to be a, a steady second pair D here. Yeah, I think that's exactly what you can can bank on with with Merrill is he's that steady second pairing guy, and so that's why he makes perfect sense to be a guy to pair with uh, with Moritz Sider. Moving into the guy who you have been uh, one of the most visible uh, proponents for this year, that's Troy Stetcher. He's out of the lineup right now. Um, but Stetcher comes in not that far behind Merrill here. Uh, I forget what his exact number is. He's 88th uh, in Dom's model. Okay. Eight, yeah. Eight, and that, you know, again, uh, that would be 0.62. So the company he's keeping there, he's around, uh, he's, he's between uh, Hampus Lindholm, Evan Bouchard, the two right above him. 
Jordan Esterly, Noah Dobson, Philip Myers are the three right behind him. Again, solid company there. And so uh, 88th by Dom's model, but as you point out, uh, in by standings points of a replacement per 60, 36th in the league among players who have played at least 100 minutes. Um, again, that's actually a middle-of-the-road first-pair kind of impact guy. Um, they're not playing him like that. They're not giving him those minutes, and so I think you can maybe dock that a little bit. But nonetheless, um, again, this is looking like a, a guy who can have solid second-pair impact. Yeah, I think that's a that's another second-pairing guy that you're looking and saying, okay, if I can keep Stetcher – um, you know, keep him as a guy that can play that, uh, that kind of offensive minded skating the puck up game. Uh, he's another great guy that you can be able to slot in on your second pair and, and, and do a lot of work with that's, and that's really what the, the wings are missing right now is they've got a couple guys who I think slot in as good second pairing defensemen, but what you're really missing is the elite guy. And so you're hoping that, you know, Merrill can serve as the launch pad for a more insider and potentially, you know, who you take in the 2021 draft or even 2022 draft could be another guy that can slot in uh, on your left side of your defense. But in the meantime, I think Merrill and Stetcher are two guys who have come in uh, really allowed. And I think they're kind of the key reasons why Detroit's five on five defense has really improved is both of, is really the play of both of these guys. Um, and so I think they're, they're both guys you want to be looking at re-signing uh, come or specifically Merrill Stetcher's obviously under contract for next season as well, but um, potentially keeping them around a, a little bit longer. You posted not too long ago a text that you sent me on the first day of training camp saying Troy Stetcher was uh, the best defenseman on this team, but I was actually thinking about it. And even farther back, maybe in December or even November, uh, I was putting together one of my expansion draft uh, previews and you said uh, you you were the first person to really prod me that Stetcher should be a keep, uh, and I, and you convinced me of it then, and I've never been more certain of it now. Troy Stetcher needs to be protected in this expansion draft, even though it's only one year on his contract. This is a guy who's what is he twenty six or has he turned twenty seven? Yeah, he's twenty six. Twenty six years old. I mean, you know, this is a guy who, even though he's not the biggest, I'm not necessarily sure how his game is going to age. It's so based on compete. Um, and heart and soul, at least three, four more years of, uh, of, of good game. I think he has to offer. Uh, this is a guy who I think you protect. And this is a guy who I think you resign kind of a perfect along with Merrill uh, bridge, the gap guy. And I think Stetcher is young enough that he can even give you a couple good years when this team's good again. Yeah. I, I think you could be looking at keeping him around until he's probably 31, 32, 33. Even, I mean, the, the way he plays his game, he doesn't take a ton of big hits. I think that's going to be his biggest worry is, you know, making sure he can keep himself clean. Uh, but otherwise, the way he skates, the way he moves the puck, the way he challenges the rush, um, all all qualities you want to have in a defenseman that's uh, even on a cup contending team. I think that's why you saw so much outrage um, in Vancouver over the summer when they elected not to qualify him and, and really just let him walk. It was kind of a bizarre decision at that time and as soon as Detroit was able to jump on him for a relatively cheap contract here uh you know I think you saw a lot of people in Vancouver talking about it you know when I dug into him when the wings signed him I saw a lot of things that I liked and it's sort of panned out nicely thus far um, and I think he's a guy that'll be able to continue doing that in a bigger role I've been impressed uh kudos to you for calling it early before he even stepped on the ice in Detroit 
Um, but yeah, I, I've been very impressed by Stetcher. And, and certainly I would say that he and Merrill, you know, I think Bobby Ryan was the free agency move that everyone got most fired up about. And I think Bobby Ryan's been as advertised, you know, he's tied for the team leading goals. Uh, he's, he's done wonders, I think, uh, in just his temperament and his mood um, for, for what that has brought to the team. But these two defensemen, Merrill and Stetcher, have been up there with Eiserman's very best moves so far. And they're the kind of moves that we've talked about on the show in the past. This is how good GMs do it. Even the best GMs aren't hitting five, six home runs uh, in their tenure in terms of player acquisition. But you take these bona fide doubles that you get, finding these players who other teams have you know, decided to let walk or they haven't quite seen enough in them, and you pick those guys up and you add them to your core – Man, there's a lot of hay to be made as a GM. Uh, that's a positive expression, right? Hay to be made? Uh, sure, I'll go with that. I don't know. If I'm wrong, I mean it positively. So how about this? There's a lot of value to be gained that way. We'll just say it explicitly and ditch the metaphor entirely uh, in, in this kind of player pickup mold. Yeah, and I mean, you see teams do this, uh, really contending teams do this regularly. You know, I, again, I will. I have to always throw this back to Carolina because that's the team that I think you should model things after. I mean, Carolina being able to pick up a guy like Jake Gardner and play him on their third pairing uh, or second pairing. Carolina a couple years ago before that, picking up Calvin DeHaan and having him be able to play on that second and third pairing. That's what a guy like Troy Stetcher does for you. And now all of a sudden, when those guys are on your second and third pairing, that's a really mobile and difficult to play against defensive group. And now you look at a team like Carolina and yeah, they have the lockdown guys up top. They've got Jacob Slavin and Dougie Hamilton, but behind them, they have so many guys that are mobile, good defensively. I mean, John Merrill's almost a Brett Pesci light. He's not in Pesci's kind of world in terms of defensive impact, but he's a, a light version of that. Uh, and, you know, Troy Stetcher is a guy that can skate the puck up and contribute offensively like a Jake Gardner and like a Calvin DeHaan. And so that's what you want to be able to add and keep and retain. Um, but what Carolina has also done a good job is knowing the right time to move on from those guys uh, and be able to bring new ones in. Yeah. All right. Then the other defenseman I wanted to talk about is Philip Peronek. He's a guy who I think has a very split uh, perception right now around the Red Wings uh, community. I mean, it's uh, not within the team, but around, you know, Red Wings followers. Um, you know, I personally am of the opinion that Philip Peronik is a good player who is just not quite cut out for this kind of workload. He's playing a true number one workload right now, 24 to 25 minutes a night. I think it's costing him a little bit in terms of quality of play. And, and that's something that you and I have both thought, I think dating back to last season and the minutes have only gone up. Uh, he's getting more experienced. Uh, but I, I think what you're still seeing is a, a good defender who has good offensive instincts uh, and is just really being uh, thrown out there so often that it's, it's kind of hard to get his best on every single shift, but I still think you're seeing high level defense, think you're seeing uh you know good smarts he's got a good shot that i i wish he would stop taking from the very top middle of the blue line uh quite so often but i still see a guy who's going to be uh, a solid to maybe even upper end second pair d someday um you know by gsva he's not that right now i think he's 143rd amongst d is what you had uh counted out uh, that obviously would put him as a good third pair guy um, you know, right now by, by GSVA, my contention would be part of that is being driven by his workload, obviously by standing points above replacement for 60, 101st, that would put him as 
kind of a second pair territory nine assists puts him among the higher scoring defensemen in the league. Although I know we've gone back and forth as to how to necessarily weight that. And certainly in the same way, I'm arguing that um, some of his underlying numbers are hampered by the workload. The scoring would, would similarly be inflated by the workload. So that has to go both ways too. So um, I'll let you have the floor on Philip Peronic. Now I still think this is a guy who projects to be a second pair player on a contender and he's young enough that I think he will be on Detroit second pair when the Red Wings are a contender. Uh, but I will turn the floor over to you for what you've thought of Philip Peronic so far. Yeah. I mean, I was really optimistic about him in his rookie season because he came in and he looked really solid defensively. He didn't look like an absolute disaster on, uh, on offense. And, and he had the heck of a shot and he had the pedigree of being a great scorer in juniors. And so, you know, all, all of those things there, uh, kind of pointed towards a guy who was potentially a, a, a hidden gem um, for the Red Wings to be able to pick up with a later round pick. But really in the two seasons since then, you know, it's it's almost like he's been thrown into the fire, uh, so to speak. And for whatever reason, even though he is somewhat floundering, he has not really had his workload lightened. I mean, last year, the guy was averaging... 2354 uh per game in terms of ice time and this season he's averaging 2357 it's been you know exactly the exact same and that's the thing that's just kind of blowing my mind is like you know what why are we not trying to optimize what Philip Peroni can do here and why are we not you know t- making an effort to lighten that workload especially when you've got guys like Stetcher and Merrill behind him who you know you and I have said are excelling in their roles right now they they should merit or warrant kind of a larger opportunity to see if you can take some of the burden off of Philip Aronik. But it's sort of getting to the point where the more I'm watching him, the more I see Rasmus Ristolainen. And I know you made this kind of crack, uh, I think, half-heartedly to me a few weeks ago, but the more I look at it and the way he's deployed, the way he's perceived, the disconnect between coaching and his numbers, it's it's following a Rasmus Ristolainen style of impact. Um, doesn't really push the needle offensively, doesn't put, you know, tends to be on the ice for a lot against defensively, but scores a lot of points and plays a lot of minutes. And it it's fitting that kind of archetype for me. And I think, you know, it's still early. He still doesn't have a strong team around him. And, you know, maybe the the kind of wrist align and being able to turn his game around a little bit this season maybe a sign of encouragement, you know, given that this is kind of Ristolainen's like eighth season in the league. Uh, But I I am certainly nervous about what Philip Peronik is going to be at least moving forward. My thing is I, I don't see a weak, a real weakness to his game. He doesn't have flashy puck skills and he's not blazing fast, but I don't really have any concerns about his ability to get to the puck when he needs to. I, I love his shot. I love his compete. Uh, I think he's a very smart player, and I do think he defends well. He's saved about four goals already, like literally saved uh, in terms of he has stopped them with his body that would have been no doubt goals. Uh, and those obviously aren't the kind of plays that as a defenseman you want to be happening when you're on the ice, and so you have to dig him for that. But I also think it it does speak to his compete that he will give his body to stop a goal. And by and large, I do think that he suppresses chances. You know, I, I know empirically – that doesn't seem to be happening to a high level. Um, but I actually think the bigger problem with this game this year has been in the offensive end. Like I think defensively, 
I've been impressed by it. And I just, I just believe in the tools enough to think that when the Red Wings are playing a style that's more conducive to offense, his offense will come back to what we saw early in his career and as a prospect. I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. I believe in the tools. I think the production, even in spite of um, kind of the underlying offense and, and, uh, and the, the style of offense this year has actually still been solid. Like for a defenseman being around a half point per game forever uh, in, in his NHL career is extremely impressive, especially this early. So I, I believe in the tools. I believe in the track record. And I, I just think that the better the Red Wings get, the, the more responsibly they can use him, the more it will come through. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's got to be your hope. I mean, the Wings were certainly putting a lot of eggs in the basket with Philip Aronik. Um, and, and the hope is, you know, maybe as you, you turn things around and things start to move in the right direction, that that's what he becomes. I think for me right now, I'm seeing, I'm not, I guess my, my disconnect here is I don't necessarily see the tools that are going to get him off this train track. And he right now is, is somewhat mirroring what the careers look like for guys like Michael Delzato and guys like Rasmus Ristolainen, where, you know, Delzato was a first round pick. Delzato was a guy that a lot of people really build as being a great uh, skater, good puck mover, good offensive defenseman, and then ended up really being a sieve defensively. Um, not saying that Philip Ronix is sieve defensively, but just never could really get it to where he was a guy that you could count on turn, turning the tables in your favor when he was on the ice. But, you know, for the better part of his career, all the way through age 25, a guy was basically getting you know, fringe first-line minutes. I mean, Philip Ronick's getting those first-line minutes. Rasmus Ristolainen got those first-line minutes. I have a hard time seeing how he gets himself off the tracks because, like you said, Max, to me, nothing stands out. Like, there's not one thing that I think he does significantly well. It's just he's got an average game, and I think it's being hurt being in this system. Um, I think maybe if you're going to look for something he does well, he's got a heck of a slap shot. But like you said, he almost he's using the one tool that he's got a little too much, and I don't actually. I think he's an above that. average defender. I mean, it might come from. I mean, he, he's a guy who I think his best trait is 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 like his give a shit level, basically, for lack of a better term, uh, and that that helps on on defending. So but. he's the Luke Lindening of defensemen. No, that's not what I said. <laughs> but that's I mean, that, that's Luke Lindening's best quality as well, right? It's his it's his ability to give a I, shit. I like his sense, though. I mean, I I I just think. I, I agree with you that he doesn't have an elite trait. I do agree with that. Like, but I don't think he has any below average trait. And I think most of his other traits, besides maybe puck skills and speed, are at least above average. Like in my opinion, at least. Like I think his shot's definitely above average. I think he thinks the game well. I think he defends well. De- defending well technically isn't a tool if we want to be technical. So maybe I should just shut up about <laughs> that. But, uh, it's know. tough. I mean, I'll say that because right, a lot of these things we have no idea what they're thinking in their head. We have no idea what they're processing. The game of hockey is so fast, really hard to pin down things like offensive awareness, IQ, um, unless it's you know abundantly noticeable. But you're right. You know, and just in watching him over three years, I don't necessarily see a particular trait that stands out to me as this is an above average trait with Philip Peronic. And it, you know, I think that's that's my biggest concern is fine, he can put you up half a point per game, but if you're losing the five-on-five battle in terms of goal differential with him on the ice, uh, how valuable of a player can he really be? Because um, right now, I, ha- I would have him behind Marilyn Stetcher on my you know top Red Wings defenseman for the season, and 
again, moving forward, he's a guy that I don't feel as good about projecting. I, I think it's fair. I mean, I guess, you know, we can go round and round on this all day. I mean, the Red Wings aren't, uh, aren't a team who have many, if anyone, who, who grade out real favorably in terms of uh, what's happening at five on five right now. That's just kind of the nature of their team. I mean, we don't like plus minus as a stat, but I think it, it still is telling that they only have four plus players and, and two of them aren't actually on the team. That's Hiroshi and Viega. Uh, and the other two are Robbie Fabry, who's a, a plus three and Sam Gagne who's a plus one. We don't like that as a stat, but it does just kind of tell you the story of, of what the ride has been for the team overall. And so, uh, but it's, it's fair. And, and I'm not going to argue that he's been their best defenseman this season. I just think he is their best uh, defenseman like going forward like he's the one that i would be most dead set on protecting in the seattle expansion draft although i think they should protect all three of those guys like that's where i'm at on on these three is actually you, you wait to sign merrill until afterward so you don't have to use a protection spot spot on him but uh i'm, I'm at heronic and Setcher are must protects and uh whoever you want to use for the third spot have fun yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see. I, I it'll all that'll all sort itself out. I, I have yeah, no yeah, doubt no about doubt. him signing somebody. But I think this is just going to be a fascinating uh, piece for Wings fans to think about because I think what Philip Peronik ultimately is has a significant impact on how far away the Red Wings are. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's no question about that. As I project the Red Wings of the future. I consider Hironic to be on their second pair. I mean, Moritz Sider is the number one um, defenseman on the right side. You're going to play him with someone. So let me let me let me illustrate for you two paths here of just what they could do in this draft. And then we get, we're going to get to the forwards, and we're going to have to do them quicker because we've taken so long at the D here. But two paths in the 2021 draft of what they could do if they take a left shot D. If you draft a Luke Hughes who I just went and watched last weekend and who I have real concerns about uh, the defensive game, but could be a dynamic, dynamic offensive defenseman, the likes of which the Red Wings flat out do not have. I don't know when the last time they had a guy who could do some of the things that he could do with his skating. Uh, he's dynamic. And, and so the defensive concerns that that you have might give you pause on exactly how high you take him, but He's the one of the youngest players in the draft too, and so I, you know, I can completely buy a real case to bet on Luke Hughes, and I might even make that case. Um, I haven't decided yet, but if you draft Luke Hughes, no question, you have to play him with Cider. That's just what it is. You're not going to play him with Heronic, I don't think. Um, he goes with Cider, and that's your Seth Jones, Zach Wierenski pairing that you roll out and, and you just let him cook. Uh, if you draft Owen Power, then I think. You play Owen Power with Philip Hironic, and you play Cider with somebody else. And I, I think that is a if if Hironic is playing next to somebody like an Owen Power, then I do think he can play 22 minutes a night and, and give you a lot of really positive stuff. Um, but if if he doesn't have that guy who I think can be the um, the rock of the pair per se, because I think he can play in all situations, but I think you still want to have kind of a you know, right now it's John Merrill, and I think he's he's a good partner for him. But Owen Power would be like John Merrill on steroids, uh, and so I don't know. You get what I'm saying? Like I I think there is a world in which Heronic is a really credible, you know, number three or four on a contender. But I also think there's a world where you know on a contender you'd rather have him uh, as kind of that that clear four uh, too. Yeah, I mean he's. Yeah, I guess don't get me wrong here. What I think, I think he can play in your second pair, but he's going to be the Brad Stewart to your Nicholas Cronwall. You need someone to drag him up. 
is what I was what I think is happening. I don't think he's going to drag a pair See, up. But that's where I disagree. I, I I don't think he needs to be dragged. I think he just needs the right compliment. I guess you know what that, I mean by that. Like I mean, you mean by right compliment, like an elite stylistically. Defenseman? <laughs> no, 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 stylistically, stylistic compliment. Like I, like I think Luke Hughes could be an elite defenseman, but I wouldn't play him with Hirona because I don't think they complement each other. That's what I was getting at with that. But like power, I think he could really compliment. I don't know. I mean, at some point, I think you you start running through the number of excuses you got to make for the guy to like drag. I don't know. Him. That's an excuse. I mean, like, what's it, the excuse it, there? An elite defenseman or a good defenseman is going to be able to play defense regardless of who he's playing with, right? No, he can play defense. I'm saying if you you've been talking the whole time about maximizing him. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to maximize him, put a better player next to him is what I'm saying. But I'm not. What I'm <laughs> saying is I'm not so sure that Luke Hughes isn't a better player than Owen Power. But Owen Power would be a better fit for Philip Peronic, is what I'm like. That's kind of what I'm getting at here is is how you how you view Philip Peronic in terms of role. I think he could play this kind of role with an Owen Power type player next to him. I don't think he could play this kind of role with a Luke Hughes type next to him. And Luke Hughes might be the better player. So that's not a playing well next to elite guys. That's a if you're going to play him, you got to play him next to one of these, uh, you know, big shut down suppressor types who still has offensive instinct and Owen power does. I've seen him make a hell of a seam pass. That'll get the most out of Philip Ronick's shot in the O zone, but in the D zone uh, it's, it's the right mix so that, you know, Hronik can be good in transition. He can be good at, uh, you know, killing a play along the wall, but he's not having to, to really bear the majority of the D load. Do you see what I'm saying there? I mean, I can buy it, but the, the cynic in me is going to say, well, both Owen power and Luke Hughes are better than Philip Ronick. Of and, course and, they and, are, but right. that's not. But, so that's but, where I'm going to go, right? Either he's going to look fine next to either of them simply because I think at this point right now where I project him, he needs a guy who is better than him on his pairing if you're going to play him on the second pair. I mean, he. do you think John Merrill is better than him? No, I mean, I don't think John Merrill is better than him by enough to drag him up. I think, I think John Merrill is John roughly Merrill. on the same tier as Philip Peronic, has had slightly better results. But he's not he, good enough to drag him up. Together right now are a credible second pair. I mean, maybe not for a cup team. But right, right they're now a they're credible, credible second pair for the second worst team in the league. No, they're a first. They're on the first pair for the worst team in the league. But I'm saying, you know, like I don't think there's more than ten teams in the league where Heronic and Merrill couldn't be a second pair for. Uh, I'm. I mean, at that point, I think you're getting all into roster construction. What the rest of the team looks like. I mean, we know Pittsburgh was able to do it with not a whole lot behind Chris Letang and. Uh, that's because their forward group was was filthy. But I don't know. I think this will probably just have to be something we'll agree to disagree. And, and in a handful of years, we'll get to look back on this and see what actually happens. But to me, I, I view him as he's got to be the Brad Stewart to the Nicholas Cronwell. It can't be the other way around and still be a serviceable second pair. Yeah, no, I, I don't have a problem with saying he's the number four. It's just it's like it's like the idea of like to me, the idea of being dragged up, it's like the player is just there and the other guy's doing everything. And I, that's not how I view Philip Peronic. I think he's a, he's a doer, but he's not, he's probably not going to be the, the number three defenseman on a contender. I think he's more likely to be the number four defenseman on a contender, but, but I think he's a, like, he's like a positive impact for, he's not just a guy you're sticking in that place. That's kind of the point I'm making. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, I'll, I'll give it to you as far as that. I, I have a lot of concerns with his time. Game. will certainly tell. There's no <laughs> doubt. I think time will tell, but uh, you know, I, I, I believe in, in the, the player. So we're going to have to rapid fire these forwards here. So uh, Dylan Larkin, uh, I, I don't know exactly where he ranked in the GSVA. It was too um, far down for me to count. Let's put it that way. 
it wasn't that far down. But it was you know, more I, than a hundred, and I was not going to count past a hundred except for Philip Peronic, <laughs> just to make my point. <laughs> All right, uh, it was a few spots below Anthony Mantha is the thing that stood out to me. <laughs> so, I think Dylan Larkin's been their best forward this year. I don't think that's a controversial opinion. Um, Dom's model actually likes I would take Bertuzzi. Brian knows. Oh, that's fair. I, I guess I'm I'm discounting Bertuzzi because he's been out. Yeah. Um, but you know, of the guys who have played, you know, more than half the season. Yeah. I yeah, think yeah. it would be Larkin. I was a little surprised that Mantha actually rates as high as he does. I, is it fair of me to assume that that's likely an underlying kind of possession thing? I believe Mantha's expected goals is still in a little bit better place than Larkin's. Yeah. Is. I mean, that's the thing about Mantha is no matter what people say about him, the end of the day, when you step back and you look at the numbers, it's somehow the team does better when he's on the ice and they do worse when he's off the ice. Uh, it doesn't matter what he looks like, what happens. That's just seems to be the case. And it's the same, probably the same concept with, with Dom's GSVA is that's the same thing being pulled out there. So I, I, you know, I really, what I, what I wanted to bring it up is, is because of the Mantha conversation and what you just said is, you know, Mantha's a guy who's taken a lot of heat, including from us at times. Um, I think he needs to score more. I don't think he had a shot on goal last night. That's the first time that's happened all season. That stunned me. I, I think he did have a few shot attempts. Uh, at least one of them was blocked late. I don't know if he missed the net on the others or what. Uh, I, I do think they need more out of Mantha. I don't think he's been at his best or anything, but it just caught my eye that, to see him still uh, rating as the Red Wings' best forward so far this year. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Like I said, I, I certainly expected more from him. I mean, I've certainly championed how good of a player he is and continue to argue with people uh, incessantly on, on on the social media sites about how good he can be. But the fact of the matter is when you watch him, it just doesn't look the same as it looked last year. Yeah. And it's hard to really piece together why that is. I mean, maybe, uh, you know, Mantha, Bertuzzi, and Larkin really all need each other to really bring the best out of each other to, to, to be that top line that they can be. And by themselves, it's a little bit tougher for each of them. Um, you know, recently, you know, Mantha has now been able to play back on the line with Larkin. I still don't think that's really, you know, made a huge difference for them, but you know, it's tough. Uh, however, when you step back and you look at the numbers, still, he's still, uh, he's still Anthony Mantha. He's still putting up Anthony Mantha numbers. Um, I think evolving hockey is a little bit harsher towards Mantha um, than Dom's model. I think they have, yeah. I mean, they're harsh to both Larkin and Mantha and yeah, the sense that Larkin they're is a negative. Yeah. I mean, they're both negatives in, in, on evolving hockey. In fact, they're 323rd and 328th amongst forwards um, in standing points above replacement per 60. So, you know, neither of those are good and they have them actually as the 12th and 13th forwards on the team. Uh, so that that's not great, but it's, it's tough. I don't know. I I think the thing I'm most comfortable saying is that nobody has been good. I think that's fair too. I I, I think Larkin's defensive game took a step forward this year, uh, at least just visibly. I, I think you see him in the lane more, which I maybe it's just because I'm looking for it because I know it's what he was trying to do. Um, but I do feel like I've seen that show up this year. Um, but you know, there's just no questioning the fact that the offensive numbers for both of those guys haven't been there and really the first half of the season all the first two-thirds of the season i thought the chances really were and and so when you look at the shooting percentage larkins had the career low shooting percentage i just kind of assumed those are gonna start going in at some point but you know the the last week week and a half maybe two weeks by now uh the chances haven't been as as noticeable either 
And I think that, if anything, is the real kind of cause for, you know, what's going on here. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, you look at the forwards right now, nobody is generating anything of substance. So a huge concern, I think, for the Red Wings. All right. And then last thing before we go to the mailbag, we talked about the disconnect between Dom's model and evolving hockey on Larkin and Mantha. Robbie Fabry is a guy who Dom's model isn't mad at. It's, you know, he's, he's a, like, you know, an okay GSVA, uh, but it's not, you know, anything special. He's, he's, you know, right behind Jason Zucker and Phil Kessel. Uh, but it's, it's considerably behind. I think it's at like half the impact of Larkin and Mantha. Um, and even Bertuzzi, who has missed a lot of time, Evolving Hockey loves him. Evolving Hockey has him as the Red Wings' best overall player this season. Yeah, and the the real disconnect is what each of the models use as the target variable for offense. Um, you know, and, and kind of the wild part with Robbie Fabry is uh, when he's on the ice right now, I mean, the, the Red Wings are scoring goals. Uh, nothing else looks great, but... You know, you look at his expected goals for percentage, it's 47.4. His uh, Corsi 4 percentage of 5 and 5 is 44.4. Goals for percentage, 70%. Something, uh, you know, so he... That would change. That's, that's the thing that's different about him. And again, I think he's getting the same stat boost as John Merrill is with... He missed really he the rough patch the when yeah. all the five guys were out. He's back when everybody's back. So his 13-game sample is with basically a full team minus Tyler Bertuzzi. And when he's been on the ice, the Wings are scoring 3.9 goals for per 60 at five on five. That doesn't make any sense. That's not going to continue. So I suspect um, because evolving hockey basically biases every player towards league average, they don't use priors for a player's ability. Um, it's going to look like he's doing way better than league average. That's going to regress pretty significantly, I think, here in the next few weeks. Great point. Yeah, it, it caught my eye because I, I thought Fabry's looked – uh, good, uh, better than maybe I was expecting at center, but I still don't think, uh, sorry, he's looked good, comma, better than a little bit better than I was expecting at center, comma, but still not as good a center as I think you're going to need him to be. Um, and I do wonder how long that experiment continues because the, the ways in which he's been good, I think have been, uh, his compete on the puck. And he does add that goal scoring touch that the Red Wing, I think he might be after, Mantha, uh, the the most kind of polished goal scorer the Red Wings have. I think Phillips Zadina has the upside to be that, but um, still some polishing to be done there. I think he brings a lot of goal scoring. I just wonder if they just move him back to the wing at some point soon here. Yeah, they'll do it as soon as his PDO bender um, kicks. You know, his on-ice shooting percentage is 15.3%. On-ice save yeah, percentage is 94.5%. As soon as that kicks, um, which it will kick, no one is going to sustain – those kinds of numbers, uh, I suspect the wings will do some rearranging. That makes a lot of sense. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. All right, so the Red Wings uh, do have another game against Nashville uh, this week. They play the Predators uh, Thursday night, 7.30. Uh, the line on that one, for those who are curious via BetMGM, the Red Wings are plus 130, Predators are minus 155 on the money line. Or you can take the spread, Red Wings getting a point and a half, you have to take that at minus 225. Or you can take the Predators by one and a half at plus 180. Uh, Over-under set at five and a half. And uh, based on the way game one went, uh, that might be the one to watch there. So uh, that's what's coming for the Red Wings uh, here on Thursday night against Nashville. Let's get into the mailbag. Prashant, anything uh, jump out to you when they went to the the, the call earlier? Well, uh, lots of people want to talk about Luke Glendening and his faceoff percentage. Uh, the oh, Ryan Express, you know, wants to talk <laughs> about it, uh, and then we got you know some other people wondering what his trade value would be. So Dylan Trammell asked uh, about the TSN Insider report mentioning Luke Glendening and his faceoff percentage. So, so Max, what do you think? Uh, what do I think about his faceoff percentage? Yeah, and then his uh, marketability and whether or not the wing should really move him or not. Yeah, uh, I think it's very marketable. I mean, I, I think uh, Glenn Denning is a guy whose name you've heard in these conversations for a while now, and there's a reason for it. I mean, I think he is kind of a prototypical uh, fourth-line center on a contender that can really help you win. Jeff Blaschel calls him a winning hockey player, and I know that that draws some, uh, you know, reactions when people hear it because the Red Wings haven't really won and hey they have Luke Glendening so uh, there's that but you know he does a lot of the things that playoff teams covet it's a lot of the things that especially some of the younger teams in the league could really use as they as they try to um, turn the corner in their uh, you know their franchise states of the franchise respectively Um, we'll talk about the face-off stat in a minute and what it's worth but just for the record like you know that is something NHL teams obviously are going to value. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, Patrice Bergeron is one of the best face-off guys in the league. And no one's saying that Luke Lindenny becomes Patrice Bergeron because of his face-off percentage. Um, but there's a reason that people give a shit about Patrice Bergeron's face-off percentage. And it's because when you need to win a face-off, you need to be able to count on your guy doing it. Um, so I do think it makes him marketable. So does the fact that he's a generally pretty respected defensive center. If he's playing 10, 11 minutes a night for a really good team, I think it pops even more. People will remember uh, you know, his series against the Lightning and Tyler Johnson a few years back. That's been a while, but Glendening is not over the hill. You know, He's, he's getting there. He's, he's getting to around age 30 here, but he's on an expiring deal. I don't know what he brings you, but I think it's, it's worth exploring if you're the Red Wings. I also think he's a guy who's worth bringing back on a short-term deal 
in the off season, but I would be, uh, I, I would be certainly exploring the trade market there. I don't think a, a second round pick from a contender is an unreasonable ask personally. I mean, you might as well ask for it because contenders seem to be more than willing to give that kind of stuff up. I mean, I, I yeah. tweeted out a couple of names, uh, um, that, that have been dealt, you know, kind of over the last 20 years. I mean, the two guys, really three guys that come to mind are, uh, Manny Maholtra, and, and then you had uh, Yannick Perot, and you had Paul Gostad. And I mean, these were three centers that literally teams just chased. I mean, Yannick Perot was traded three times for draft picks uh, right around the deadline. You know, Manny Maholtra was traded early in his career for, for a draft pick. And Paul Gostad, the guy is literally a bigger version of Luke Glendening and was traded for a first round pick at the trade deadline and subsequently given a four-year contract, the guy had never scored more than 31 points in a season. So, you know, people overvalue the, the face-offs because it's, it's tangible. You see a face-off win in a critical situation and that led to a result that, uh, you know, was positive for your team. You know, you went a face-off late on a, on a power play and your team's able to score. That's great. That's really good. However, as important as situational faceoffs can be, largely on a whole, faceoffs are not that important. People always ask this: is like, is, are faceoffs overrated? And my only response is, it depends on who's rating them. I think are they overrated potentially? Like, I, I know people have been complaining about hearing it on the broadcasts a lot, and uh, I, you know, I obviously only watch the broadcast when they're on the road, so it didn't feel like I was hearing it, you know, more than once a game, which feels like about the, the amount of time you expect to hear a stat. Cause you know, the, the broadcast has to assume that they have new people watching each time, but could they be overrated by kind of the old guard? Probably. But I also think if you're someone who's constantly talking about how overrated they are, you might be underrating them a little bit. So like, it's, it's certainly for a team like the Red Wings uh, who has trouble entering the zone with possession face-offs are one of the ways that you can get yourself set up in the zone like the, like that's so valuable now luke lindenning's line doesn't really matter if, if they uh get set up in the zone because they very rarely you know really get a, a a non-cycle offense going there so i'll grant that i, I grant that luke lindenning's face-off percentage probably translates to offense less than most of the other top face-off guys in the league but i think face-offs are important you know overrated underrated completely depends on who's saying it and my guess is if you're asking if they're overrated you're probably underrating them and if you're asking if they're underrated you're probably overrating them i will inform top five face-off teams buffalo detroit and vancouver that they should be better well i you know again team face-off percentage i i don't necessarily think is the same thing like I, you know it, it's all about the um, I don't know. Like, I want a player who can win me a big faceoff. I just do, you know. But, but I hear what you're saying about the, the the teams who are necessarily at the top of the league. There, um, you know, it's it's relevant. I I just think like you'd always rather have possession of the puck in whatever zone you're taking the faceoff in. Like, I, I've I've been. This is the thing that drove me crazy about when zone starts seemed to be everyone. The only thing everyone gave a shit about when putting players' stats into context is like. It doesn't matter if you're in the ozone if you lose the faceoff. Like you, I don't expect any points out of you because you you don't have the puck. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. I think my point, and really the point that I like to drive home specific to Luke Glendening, is if your only real skill is being able to win faceoffs, then you are not as valuable to me as a player that doesn't win that wins ten percent fewer faceoffs, but can do a lot more with the puck. And that's the problem that I have with 
chasing the face-off specialist, which is what drives me nuts. It's chasing the Yannick. Well, Yannick Crow is probably the best of them because he actually could score some. But, you know, Paul Gostad, Manny Mahotra, Luke Lindenning is in this bucket now. Chasing that face-off specialist and tying up a roster spot for a guy who can really only win you a face-off is not worth it. I mean, you threw out Patrice Bergeron, but that's because Patrice Bergeron is the best two-way player in hockey. Pavel Datsuk was an outstanding face-off man. Yeah, but I threw him out not to compare him to Glenn Denning. I threw him out well, to contrast well, you know, him to Glenn in, Denning. But in that sense, right, if you can't do those other things, then your face-off skill is not worth it because as soon as you win the face-off, you immediately are less valuable than another player on the ice, right? So, I know, but no one's saying that he's Patrice No, but what Bergeron. I'm trying to get at is like, if you want the guy that's going to go out and win you the face-off, as soon as the face-off is won that player is now a detriment relative to another player. And that's the problem that I have is like the face-off is one aspect. So fine, if you want to put him on the ice, take the face-off and have him immediately get off the ice, great. But having him take the face-off and then subsequently be a part of that possession is an overall negative versus the guy who's going to win 49% of his face-offs as opposed to 60% of his face-offs but can actually do something with the puck when they get it. That's that's the issue I have with chasing the face-off specialist. Okay, but the problem the, like the problem then with the player is not that they're good at face-offs like like it, it that I don't know. Like this is like one of the things that like you know, if you if you just don't want to hear about face-offs as much, that's one thing. I have complete understanding for that. There's all kinds of things that we talk about too much. Same thing with like Dylan Larkin being friends with Zach Wierenski. If it's if it's just a narrative based thing i get that and you're just sick of the narrative like that's one thing but you'd always prefer a player who's one of the best at something than one who's not now i think that the idea of over prioritizing specialists is a problem in sports it's a problem you know maybe the the three-point specialist might be the only thing that i really can uh understand in in, in basketball like the three-point specialist that's the, the position that's like all right the way the game is moving if you want to bring in a guy who all he can do is hit a corner three, I actually think you can really justify that. Faceoffs are not on that level. Neither is being a you know power play net front guy. Neither is being a power play quarterback. A hundred percent, I agree. But you'd still rather have a guy who is all of those things than you know. You're, again, you're not comparing Luke Lindenning to Patrice Bergeron. You're not bring Boston's not going to bring in Luke Lindenning. And be like, oh, great. Now we don't have to use Patrice Bergeron in these situations. If you're bringing in Luke Lindenning, it's relative to your current fourth line center, who probably isn't very good at anything anyway, except for, you know, going up and down the ice, which I think Luke Lindenning can do just as well as any of those guys. And he's a great faceoff guy. So that I think therein lies the value of Luke Lindenning. It's that he's as fourth line centers go as solid as it gets. So I think overall the issue I then I have kind of bringing it back to simply the face-off is that when you look at, um, I think people overvalue the the importance of winning the face-off relative to when a goal is scored, even from end zone time. I think that's the, that's the issue I have is, you know, how important was that one face-off? You know, there's certainly goals where you can point to it. Patrick Nemitz goal the other night, uh, against Florida. I mean, it was a clean face off draw. hours. The puck moved right over and that allowed Nemeth to have space. I think in certain instances, when a goal is coming three or four seconds off the face off, you can very clearly point to the importance of the face off relative to the goal that happened. But I think we devalue all the other things that happen after the face off. You devalue the winger support on the face off 
and you devalue the skill set of the players being able to actually do something with the puck after they've won the faceoff and inflate kind of the overall value of the actual faceoff happening. That's that's the main issue I take with it. Is like it just it doesn't very often result in you know a very clean play like that Patrick Nemeth thing. And again, as soon as that faceoff is done, even if you have possession that player is now a net negative. To me, that's the same logic as saying, because pulling the goalie doesn't very often result in the goal. You don't want to pull your goalie. Yeah. Most of the time, like, you know, it might not amount to something, but you'd rather have the opportunity for it than not. Well, goals are very different because it pulling your goalie very much increases your expected goals for, right? So So does winning a face off. I would imagine it actually doesn't mathematically, you know, the measurable effects of a face-off are really limited to the six to seven seconds after a face-off. After that, we don't really see it. And there's been multiple looks at this by multiple analysts. And that's the big reason why I hold this so staunchly is the face-off benefits are really limited to the first five or six seconds. And after that, that's not what you're seeing is not a result of the face-off. And that's why the Patrick Nemeth goal is a perfect example. That's a face-off goal. But there's very few goals that are scored like that. And, and that's why I just think you devalue all the other things that happen after the faceoff when you're talking about plays that happen beyond those five or six seconds. That's fair. I, I mean, it, it is fair. I mean, it, once if you're in the ozone and you lose the draw, the, the defending team clears it and you're going to go try to enter the zone again, you know, I, I guess you're at that point. Uh, as long as you can enter the zone, not in that much worse posi- uh, position than you were winning the, the draw. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just think in, in situations where the game is on the line, uh, I want to win the faceoff so I can dictate the, the, what's going to happen with the puck, especially in dangerous areas of the ice. I think it's valuable. Is it more valuable than just overall being a, a player who drives play? Of course not. But that's why we're not talking about like a first round pick here or, or, you know, whatever else. I mean, if you don't think Luke London is worth a, sec- a second round pick, I think that's fine. Like, uh, you know, that's why I think the Red Wings should make that trade is because obviously it's worth more to them to have a second round picks. And so that's why it's, it's a worthwhile trade, but um, you know, I, I'm not arguing for, for Luke London to be considered one of the 90 best centers in the NHL. I just think, you know, for, for a contending team, I don't think he's too much lower than that. And and for a playoff team, he's a, a guy that I would want to to have uh you know, both as a matchup player and yes, specifically for some face-off skill. Yeah, I mean, I I I hear you on that. I think the disconnect for me is uh, you know, you look at a player like Patrice Bergeron, you know, you threw him out as a guy who win face-offs, but he's also incredibly skilled. People are gonna tie the goal to his face-off win and not all the other things he provides you right after that face-off win. And that's that's my issue. You certainly want to win. Like, I'm not coming out here and saying, don't win the face-off. You right. always want to win the face-off. But what you do after the face-off is not a result because of the face-off. Like, Luke Lindenning with possession of the puck on a one face-off is worse than Patrice Bergeron without the puck losing a face-off. And that's, that's the point I'm getting to. Like, I would rather be in the scenario where I have Patrice Bergeron who lost the face-off than have Luke Lindenning with possession of the puck after the faceoff. Of course, of course. But again, no one is choosing between Luke Lindenning and Patrice Burge. Literally no one has ever I, said no, you're I choosing. I get it, but what them. I'm saying is what that what I'm doing is you're tying the importance of what happens after to the one faceoff when it's actually the player on the ice. And that's why like I could give two craps about Luke Lindenning 
and his face-off percentage, but I'll always be here to talk about it with anybody else. But even in the skill guys, I don't really care about it because it's all their other skills that is what makes them special. All right. I, that's fair. I mean, I, I think we've kind of reached the the logical endpoint of that uh, debate here. Uh, but, you know, I, you make a good point about the first six, seven seconds. I, you know, I, I do get that. I just think uh, there are many things in life that I think if you're asking if it's overrated, you're probably underrating it. And if you're asking if it's underrated, you're probably overrating it. That's just kind of my, my broad take on, on that kind of situation. That's fair. All right. We might have time for one more here and then we got to let our producer uh, go have the rest of their life. Anything stand out? Uh, I guess a lot of people with Claude Julian being uh, let go by Montreal, you know, the coaching brigade has, has restarted. Max is uh, does Claude Julian change anything for the Red Wings? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. Do yeah. You? No. And you're not going to make a change in season uh, just because he's available. I don't, I'm a little surprised that they did though. Like, I will say that I, like, I really didn't think any team was going to change coaches unless it got really bad. And Montreal wasn't a team that I would have foreseen as that they could have like a really bad, like I almost would like, maybe you expected if like Boston gets off to a disaster start, Montreal got off to a good start. They've fallen on a rocky last three weeks. I mean, they're a team with overinflated expectations that was undone by poor special teams and bad goaltending. Uh, you put all three of those together. I'm not shocked that they made the move, but I think they're really going to regret it uh, moving forward because uh, Claude Julian was really overachieving with that roster. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we will wrap up this episode. Uh, we short we shortchanged you on the last episode on time length. So hopefully we gave it back to you this time. And uh, I do apologize for the barking for about 10 straight minutes there. I have no idea what was happening outside the window, but it must've been pretty interesting. So uh, everybody take care and uh, we'll be back at you uh, early next week. And uh, if you are listening to this, uh, we would love if you would give some feedback. So if if you want to go into the show notes, wherever you're listening to the show, uh, there should be a link and you can give us your feedback. Tell us what you think of the show We'd love to hear from you uh, and please be as, as honest as possible. We want to make this uh, show as fun to listen to as possible and uh, your feedback helps us do that. So thanks so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye.